Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. This is a special Russia-centered episode of Battle Rhythm because Russia is all over the place in our Canadian attention span and in the world attention span, given what's going on in Ukraine and Kazakhstan and between NATO and Ukraine. But before we get to that, Stephanie, how much snow did you get? And did you do any of the digging? I did do a lot of shoveling yesterday. So much shoveling, but uh, it's good. It's a good workout. And then I took the kids uh, sledding early evening. It was beautiful to see the lake. So I'm I'm pretty happy to have snow around. It's uh, making Kingston uh, more beautiful. Yeah, but you got more snow in Ottawa, didn't you? Yeah, we got a foot and a half, and our investment in snow removal firm paid off nicely. I, I had to do some shoveling, but not much. And we'll see what damage the sidewalk person does to the clean, you know, our, our driveway. What usually happens is our driveway gets swept out, and then the town, the city's sidewalk people come through with their little machine that throws all the snow from the sidewalk into my driveway, and then I have to shovel. So we'll see how that plays out today. But I'm, I'm happy to see the snow. I haven't done any snowshoeing or cross-country skiing yet because uh, we simply haven't had the snow to do it. And so now that I can I can start doing some of these winter things that will get me out into the sun. And, and it is a lovely day. The combination of blinding white snow and blue skies is, a, is something I always look forward to in wintertime is to, is to have that combination. So we have that in a big, big way today. Speaking of cold places, I did say we're going to be talking about Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan today. Why don't we start with Kazakhstan? While we were away, much has happened. There was uh, protests because of changes in fuel subsidies. It was exacerbated by regional differences and in, in, in within Kazakhstan over who has power and, and where the oil is. As a result, the government sort of handled it poorly. And they had what turns out to be, people are calling it a coup and a counter coup, but I'll call it an gobe and a coup, which is that the existing government tried to gain more power, seizing power from some of the other power centers in the country. It met resistance from the forces of the old president, Nazarbayev, who had some control within the secret police. So that led to the president, Tokayev, reaching out to the Russians who intervened with the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which are former pieces of the Soviet Union, Russia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. And they helped to repress the protests. And that's where we're kind of at right now. As you watch this, did you have any reactions, Stephanie? Well, my first reaction, I think, is shared by many who are tracking the developments in Kazakhstan. But it's just to think about the longer term implications of calling Russian troops in I think calling them in is easy. Showing them the door might not be. Mm-hmm. And as someone who studies alliances, I was also curious to read more about the CSTO's mechanisms for calling in these so-called peacekeepers. I noticed that Article 4 of the treaty, which mm. reads a lot like 
Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, NATO's treaty, in terms of being a mutual defense clause. And so the rationale or the mechanism that was triggered for the first time since the CSTO's creation was around Article 4. And so this means that uh, President Tokayev had to formulate the, a threat to the country because the, the article states that, you know, parties subjected to aggression by any state or group of states will be considered as aggression against all states' parties to this treaty. But here, President Takayev is calling this a terrorist threat and requesting military assistance from the CSTO, but invoking Article 4. So I was paying attention to mm -hmm. the alliance mechanisms behind this request for troops and trying to make sense of it. What do you know about the CSTO alliance, Steve? Well, what's striking about the CSTO is like the Warsaw Pact, it's a valid uh, reason for being is external threats, but it ends up only being used for internal threats. So one thing that distinguishes NATO from either the Warsaw Pact or the CSTO is that NATO has never been used to put down a domestic conflict in its history. In fact, they've stayed far away from it. The NATO never played a role in Northern Islanders or the Basque situation or whatever else and you know other other domestic political disputes in, in NATO countries. Whereas the Warsaw Pact was only used to repress protesters in Hungary. East Germany, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. Whereas the CTSO's, uh, you know, first deployment is what is to put down protests in one of its members. So it shows how elastic the concept of alliances and of of threat. It is very clear from the dynamics in Kazakhstan that there was no external involvement in any of this stuff. It was very much a, a series of events driven by fuel subsidies being changed, protests, government mishandling the protests, and on and on. I do think this fits into a larger concern for the Russians, which is they fear the color revolutions that will lead to more pro-Western government. That's why they got involved in Ukraine in 2014. It's why they've been involved in Belarus. It's why they were involved in a lot of other places that they fear that it'll lead to a more pro-Western regime in Kazakhstan, and Kazakhstan is very important, both because of a model it would set for other pieces of the former Soviet space and for Russia itself, and because it is chock full of resources, oil, natural gas, uranium. So this place matters a whole lot to Russia for both symbolic reasons and for material reasons. And Putin wants to make sure that any effort to have dissent is put down. I know we're going to talk about Ukraine as well, but the narratives that we're hearing coming out of Kazakhstan are just as absurd as the narratives around or the Russian narratives around Ukraine in terms of the demands that are being put on the table and the claims that are being made targeting the West. Yeah, the, the one consistent strand of Putin has been implausible deniability, that he denies stuff or makes up narratives that aren't convincing to outside audiences, but might be convincing to some audiences within Russia and within Kazakhstan. So that might be what, partly what's going on here. But, you know, these uh, these events are related. So he's obviously more concerned about instability in Kazakhstan because of what's going on in Ukraine. And also one of the questions is how many troops does Putin have to throw at, at Kazakhstan, given all the troops that he's been marshalling on the border of Ukraine? So why don't we move over and start talking about Ukraine? People are predicting World War III. How do you feel about that? Well, the, it's a slow-moving crisis. People are also making some parallels between this standoff and the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in the 
1960s. So I'm relieved in a way that the crisis is playing out over weeks, not days. I'm also relieved that diplomacy was given a chance to run its course. I mean, even if it's a very tense standoff, you know, I think we can still find some cause for optimism in the fact that bilateral talks were held between Russia and the U.S. There was a meeting of the NATO-Russia Council for the first time in a long time, and then more diplomatic negotiation through the, the OSCE. And those didn't yield any results, but the fact that they happened, I think, you know, is a good thing. But beyond that, I think there are a few points that are concerning. One of the points that's being raised is much is being said about the phrase, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. And that's been repeated by you know, Ukrainian and American and other stakeholders alike. But, you know, at the end of the day, the most important diplomatic exchanges are held without Ukraine. And Ukraine is often left out of the loop or the equation. And that makes sense as a Russian tactic, but why are the U.S. NATO EU getting boxed in. So that that's one area where mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of noise. And then if we take NATO's example, for instance, Russia has a series of demands that are explicitly tied to Ukraine. And NATO's position is always that it respects the sovereignty of states in making their own foreign policy choices and choosing <laughs> their preferred alliances, international organizations, what have you. But then NATO is also fine with cutting Ukraine out of the discussion where it is uh, directly concerned. So I think that, that that's an ongoing challenge, obviously, for a country like like. Ukraine, but I feel like Russia is driving a lot of the, the, the momentum right now. And I feel that like there's more to be gained than from isolating Putin diplomatically and, and ignoring all of this bluster rather than giving in and letting him set the pace of, of the events, which has been my feeling since the beginning. I also, one thing that irks me, and I think it's necessary to take the, the longer view on Russia-NATO relations, but this idea of the widening gulf between Moscow and the West and I'm thinking, why now? Why escalate this crisis now with the motives that Russia is articulating or Putin is articulating? The NATO-Russia Council was created in 1997. Putin first became president in 1999. In 2002, during the NATO-Rome summit, Putin famously professed full support for a close Russian partnership with NATO. So if you read his statements from the time, like early 2000s, and even after that, you know, this hardly sounds like someone who was aggrieved. So, you know, I know that we're, we're rehashing the deal from the end of the Cold War vis-a-vis enlargement, and Putin is framing this as some kind of betrayal. But when you track Putin's position over time when it comes to NATO-Russia relations, you know, he he's had over 20 years in office to make it right, and it would have been a lot easier for him to adjust the terms of Russia's relationship with NATO when things were going well. And now in 2021 and 2022 is, is the time where he, you know, decides to escalate escalate the crisis over over demands that could have been made, you know, in a much more relaxed context, you know, as of 1999. So that that's the part where I'm I'm trying to make sense of, of the timing of it as well. And, and the more you look closely at his motives, the more I think it's about domestic constituencies mm -hmm. and domestic politics. Yeah, I agree. I think there are th dynamics that have happened since 2002, such as the Georgia conflict in 2008, the invitation of NATO made to Ukraine and, and Georgia in 2008 that they would eventually potentially join NATO, even though the alliance itself, and nobody really expects either country to be eligible or for NATO to get consensus on having them in anytime too soon. But this is also part of a larger pattern of Putin causing himself more problems. So one of the striking things about 2014 was 
he got more involved in, in Ukraine at a time where he's, he's claiming that, you know, NATO was threatening, but it was a time where every member of NATO was cutting its defense budget, particularly the European countries. And the United States was literally pulling its last tanks out of, out of Europe. So NATO was having less and less capability that would threaten Russia. And so it really shows that this is about political threats, not about military threats. And the political threat in 2014 was Ukraine potentially becoming a member of the EU. And that was problematic for Russia because that would show to, to Russians and to other people in the former Soviet space that there's a way out of their economic situation by joining Western Europe and by becoming more democratic. And these are not things that Putin wanted. So these are the things that matter. And that's that's sort of the parallel between Ukraine 2014 and Kazakhstan 2021, 22 now, is the political things. It's not really about NATO's military threat, although people can make noises about ABM facilities in Poland, but it's really about the politics that Putin needs to be identified as a leader. He needs to be the leader of the anti-Western community, of the forces of electoral autocracy, essentially, although he won't call it that, and that things like Ukraine are very important in all that. Why 2021, 2022 to ramp up things on the border? And again, there's not a visible change in the external dynamics of this. It's not like NATO has really changed what it was doing in 2021 from what it was doing in 2018. We have an increased number of troops that are hanging out in the Baltics, which are a token force. And so I do think that there's there's probably stuff going on domestically. But there's an interesting development this past couple of days, which is we're sending special operators to Ukraine. How do you feel about that? We the Canadians, that is. Yeah, well, I think we're going to have to be bringing back some diplomatic staff if this escalates. And also, you know, the, the troops that are in Ukraine are there for a training mission. You know, the, the rules of engagement are about capacity building training. They're not about fighting a war. And so if this really escalates, then there needs to be very quick action in terms of getting Canadians back home, figuring out what to do with the military personnel that's there and so on. So I think that's why the special mm -hmm. operations forces are, are there. So it's certainly, you know, not encouraging. <laughs> You're asking me whether we're, we're facing a a war. And I think the potential and the risk of miscalculation and overreaction is definitely there. This move to send special forces to the Ukraine is a signal that, you know, the government's assessment is also that the, the risk of war is, you know, increasing. So those were my initial reactions. What, what do you think about the deployment of special operations forces? And more broadly, the question you asked me, you know, are we facing World War III? Well, I think you're, you're spot on, which is I think the Kansas is being spent there to, to evacuate if there's an emergency. I don't know how much it adds as a deterrent to have more potential foreigners harmed in, in an attack. I, that is something that Putin has to calculate, which is whatever war plans they have, do they care about hitting Canadians and Americans and Brits and others who are in the country. We haven't established a tripwire kind of thing, but it's still problematic to be endangering the lives of, of folks from outside the country if you want to attack Ukraine. Uh, but that might not stop. I don't think these troops are being sent as a deterrent. No, no, no. How I'm reading it uh, no. in any case. And, and besides, I don't think that there's anything that Canada can do on its own to no. change the deterrence equation as far as Russia is concerned. No, not at all. I One thing that might be helpful that these special operators might do as well, although it probably, it's probably not their mission, is that the Americans have been speculating, or not speculating, they've been reporting that the Russians are planning various operations in Ukraine to provide a pretext for their intervention. This is something that 
has been done in the past by the Soviet Union and by Russia to have some sort of event that gives them an excuse to intervene. I'm not sure how believable, again, I refer to how implausible does implausible deniability have to be for it to be politically useful. I don't think people would buy it, or at least most people would buy it, but it would provide some cover to those who are fellow travelers of the Russians to say, well, you know, the Ukrainians did this, even though it's pretty clear they didn't do whatever it is. So having Canadian eyes on the ground, more Canadian eyes that are trained in reconnaissance and being trained in the ability to discriminate about what's going on might be useful. But I, I I do think that it makes sense. I mean, the first reporting of special operators, I'm like, oh my God, what are they doing? But once you look at it closer, it, it's not about having them serve at the front, but it's about potential evacuation. Something that we've had to worry about, you know, given what happened in Afghanistan last summer, that we yeah. might be better prepared for an eventuality that might not happen. Uh, in terms of World War III, I don't think we are going to see World War III because the United States is not threatening to use force to protect Ukraine. We do not actually have the same kind of obligation to Ukraine. I mean, certainly the agreement where Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons obligated the Americans and the Russians to care about the sovereignty of Ukraine, but that doesn't have the same force as membership in NATO. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. One of the reasons why it's not a member of NATO is that we didn't want to defend, want, didn't want to be tied to having to defend Ukraine if push came to shove. And Biden's statements and the statements of other American leaders are make it clear that the United States is not going to get involved in a shooting war in Ukraine, despite the fact you have various people in the news and op-eds in the United States saying such crazy stuff. It simply is not worth it. It's hard enough to guarantee the security of the Baltics and Bulgaria and places like that. But to try to guarantee the security of Ukraine, we just don't have the willingness to not just promise the defense of a country that would be at war with Russia, but Ukraine has been at war with Russia since 2014. So do we really want to join a war? I, I don't think that's going to happen. And it's unfortunate for the Ukrainians that they're in the middle of this. But if Putin uses those thousands of troops, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops at the border and invades, it's going to cost them, but it's not going to cost them a war with the West. It's going to cost them a war with Ukraine and more economic sanctions. I don't think this is going to spiral out of control. But having said that, we can't always control escalation. And so so we prefer not to have these events provide opportunities for things to get out of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What will be interesting too, from a Canadian perspective, and maybe we can revisit this on our next podcast, is that this is one instance where we'll see Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie truly in action. He's been taking part in, in some bilateral and multilateral diplomacy with European players, including Ukraine. And, and this is going to ramp up, of course, this week. She will also be visiting Canadian troops stationed in Ukraine who are... Um, you know, carrying on with their training mission through Op Unifier, as we just mentioned. So I, I'm looking forward to taking stock of you know, seeing Minister Julie in action in, in the midst of a diplomatic crisis. And we have to remind ourselves that we, the Canadians, see this conflict differently than much of the rest of NATO, because as I was reading today from the preparation of this, we have the third largest Ukrainian population in the world after Russia and Ukraine. And that obviously drives any government to make sure that they look like they're doing something you know, on behalf of, of Ukraine, that the mission to train the Ukrainian military, it's a Canadian one, not a NATO one, that there are other countries that are doing it, but not all of NATO is present and not all of NATO has the same sort of views towards how important Ukraine is. So it would take consensus by NATO to get Ukraine into NATO, and that's not going to happen because the Canadians, the Americans may want it, but the rest of Europe doesn't. And the rest of Europe is much more reluctant to get seriously involved in this. There are some countries that are more willing to. So there was a strange video last night or, or picture last night of British planes sending arms to Ukraine, but they were flying indirect route around Germany. And that was raising questions about the role of Germany in all of this. You're not going to see Germany push for NATO to engage in a war 
in Ukraine. So there are a lot of restraints of what NATO can do and what we all can do. And we have to remember that the Canadian perspective is just that, a Canadian perspective, influenced in part by the diaspora politics here at home. Yeah. <laughs> we have a group feature interview this week following on from our last episode. So the second group of the Peace Fellows from the uh, Halifax International Security Forum. Is that correct, Steve? That's correct. We taught, we had the first half of the folks we talked to last time, and we're having the second half this time. Five officers ranging from Lithuania to France, Sweden, Australia, and the U.S. And so it was a very interesting conversation. I needed to get to geek out a little bit over the U.S. Air Force pilot because she's a fighter pilot. So we, we talked a little bit about the, what names that she had, you know, her call sign and of her husband and then of her kids. So that was a fun part of it. And we got a different perspectives on, on sort of the situations they're facing these days. So stick around for that interview and then stick around for my recommendations for what to watch as we take breaks from digging ourselves out. I am really looking forward to the R&R segment because I'll have some downtime with the kids being back in school. So I look forward to that so that I can get some leisurely activities back on the agenda in the evenings. Sounds good. Uh, good to talk to you after after our long break. Glad to be back talking to you and hope that the listeners of Battle Rhythm had a, had a good break. And hopefully 2022 will be a, a better year. I hope so too. Take care, Steve. Good afternoon, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Monica Metmeyer. I come from Lithuania. Currently, my, I'm posted to the Lithuanian Ministry of Defense uh, as senior advisor in the Defense Policy Group. And I've been in the armed forces for 25 years. And good afternoon, I am Colonel Anna Sinistik from the Swedish Air Force. I'm the commanding officer at the Swedish Air Force uh, Warfare Center. And my background is as a meteorologist. But it's uh, 20 years since I did my last uh, forecast. I <laughs> uh, um, have several other jobs since then uh, in command and control and uh, in the um, defense staff in Sweden. I have 31 years and that was it. Hi, uh, bonjour, je suis donc le commissaire général Catherine Bourdes des Forces Armées Françaises. And uh, I'm a finance officer by trade. I've uh, went to a lot of different assignment. I'm currently Deputy Director in the French Academy for Higher Military um, Studies, so I'm interested in questions. And that's it. I'm a mother of three and uh, happy to with the job I'm doing. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Group Captain Louise Desjardins from the Royal Australian Air Force. I'm an Air Battle Manager by trade with almost 29 years of service. I'm actually currently uh, between jobs at the moment, so I just finished up in our Joint Operations Command as the Director of Joint Effects and Targeting uh, before coming on the fellowship. And then in January, the family and I are moving to Israel and I'm going to be our Defence Attaché. And I'm Colonel Danielle Willis, United States Air Force. And I'm the commander of the 93rd Air Ground Operations Wing, which is headquartered at Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. And uh, we have three main mission sets, Tactical Air Control Party, Combat Weather, and Integrated Base Defense. So we are the conventional part of the U.S. Air Force that really links the air and ground forces, especially when we're talking about integration, uh, strength, and command and control. My background is I've been in the Air Force for 25 years, and I started out in fighter aviation as a Strike Eagle Wizzo and then F-16 pilot, and absolutely fell in love with the close air support mission, and I've been doing that for the last 10 years. Well, congratulations on being selected as fellows. I hear you've had a fairly busy program thus far, and perhaps we can start with how the interactions that you've had, either with your 
other fellows or with the folks that you've met in Canada and in the United States have affected how you view your own work? Uh, so I can start since Louise started with the uh, introductions. Sorry, and I called you by your full name. Yeah, so since right. Louise started with the introductions. <laughs> so the, the program is amazingly well put together, starting with the selection of the fellows. And I think that the Halifax International Security Forum and their selection committee did a fantastic job really putting together a group of women with diverse backgrounds. So we've been learning a lot about uh, not just operations, but perspectives and integration of, of gender into the forces in a way that I hadn't considered from my operational background. Uh, so really looking at not just how do we increase the number of women or the diversity of the force, but why that's important and how those perspectives can impact global security. So that part has been fantastic and, and it really is a, a wonderful group of women. As far as the engagements, also extremely high quality. So the number of people who are experts in their field that are willing to sit down with us and eager to sit down with us, not just to provide their expertise, but a true exchange of ideas and, uh, and how we can provide our perspectives as military officers, but also understand a, a different view of international and global security as we look at the intersecting topics of climate, China, uh, gender and the pandemic and how they affect our futures. What was your call sign? So my call, my call sign is Burn. Um, I, you know, every fighter pilot's got to have a call sign. So. And why would they call you Burn? Well, usually you have to buy me a beer to get that story. <laughs> um, I'll make an exception for today. It's uh, mostly my husband and I were both joint spouse, and he was active duty for 21 years as an F-16 pilot. He retired about four years ago. Uh, and now flies as a contractor. But his call sign was Slash, and a little play on words is Slash and, and Burn, so that's uh, how we got it. And then you gotta add the kidlets. Oh yes, oh, so we have two children, um, two daughters who are 10 and 12, and so they were, uh, when they were born I was an instructor pilot, and our commanding officer at the time said, you know, if you're fighter pilots, your children have to have call signs as well. So my older daughter is Singe and my younger daughter is Scorch because they're little burns. <laughs> That's fantastic. You're both from your respective air forces. And so the air forces of the world are facing challenges these days with uh, increased use of, of drones, I assume, as a fighter pilot. And, and what was your previous job before you were on the, on the joint staff? So I'm an air battle manager. So basically I get to tell fighter pilots where to go. Uh, and, okay. So with the evolution of technology, do you feel as if your air forces are, are set up for dealing with the next thing? Or do you feel as if the traditions of, 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 of your organizations are making it hard to figure out how to adapt to changes in technology? So I think for the Royal Australian Air Force, we've been undergoing a modernization program and, and a, um, an innovation program for a number of years now mm -hmm. to answer that future uh, what it looks like, how we can react, and how we'll still be a valid force in the years to come. So I'm, I'm confident that for the most part we're moving along, along the right pathway, and importantly we're undergoing a cultural transformation as well. And, and that began, well there's been a number of cultural reviews, but really 2011 was, was one of the most recent crisis points within the Defence Force. And the reaction just hasn't been in 2011, it's been an evolving cultural program, and in fact our Chief Air Force and our uh, the Air Force Warrant Officer just released an update to, to the Air Force's cultural program, and, and they're requirements of, of the Air Force as we move forward. So 
I think we're, we're closely linking the importance of people and the importance of culture and the impact of that on our ability to conduct operations as needed into the future. Well, and I would say that Air Forces in general, I mean, this Air Force in particular, is an institution that has a proud tradition of innovation. And if you look back in our history on the Doolittle Raids and reading Malcolm Gladwell's the book, The Bomber Mafia, um, and even the pivots that we did in operations after 9-11, we adapt to meet the threat that's in front of us, and and I think that this era is no different. As we look at you know what are the changes that are happening on the global scale, what type of technology do we need to have to meet those changes, not just from the aircraft procurement, but there's a huge drive in innovation in our force. General C.Q. Brown, who's our chief of staff of the Air Force, issued a paper last year called Accelerate, Change, or Lose um, with an addendum of four action items uh, that we need to empower our airmen we need to bust through bureaucracy, we need to understand the competition, and we need to understand the design of our force. And so that's being taken at heart at both the strategic level and the tactical level. And if I can give you an example, recently as we finished up our operations in Afghanistan, my unit, uh, the 93rd AGAL, supports the 82nd Airborne Division that got called up uh, on less than 12 hours notice to deploy. And uh, as they went to help secure the airfield at uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport. We brought along with them tactical air control party personnel from the 14th ASOS. And as they got into theater, they realized that we didn't have all the communications network and infrastructure that we used to have, and we needed to, to find a way to get our air picture to the right decision makers. So I had three airmen in under 60 hours go through and get permissions that usually take months of requirements to get and ensure that we had the air picture piped in not just to the guys on the ground, but also back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, so the 82nd Airborne Division staff could make informed decisions about how they were going to conduct operations. It's that type of innovation that doesn't have to be procured mm -hmm. uh, in big programs, but it's empowering our airmen, it's using the principle of mission command, and it's relying on smart people to do what needs to get done. In terms of the broader strategic piece, that was also the subject of conversations and presentations. It's the three-week program overall. And we might assume that a group of NATO and partnered countries might have similar views on things in general, but I'm sure you've noticed some differences. So I was wondering if you could go into those differences that you've noticed between how perhaps you view global security challenges and how you observed others view global security challenges. Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, the, the old adage that uh, where you stand depends on where you sit is, uh, is extremely applicable here. So as we're looking at our global security challenges from the United States perspective, we have a national defense strategy that looks at some pacing challenges at China and Russia, still recognizing that violent extremist organizations are a factor for us. But when I look at uh, some of the other partners that we have with us, uh, our colleague from Lithuania is very concerned about Russia, about the Belarusian refugees that are on their border right now. And so her perspective on where to put the emphasis uh, and how we need to think about the global strategic environment in terms of her regional lens is, is very important. And the same for our uh, colleagues from the Pacific nations. That's right. So for us, you know, recently and our latest defence strategic update has been focused on, on the rise of China 
and what that power balance change looks like within our region. And what we are also seeing, though, is a return to that Indo-Pacific area by nations that haven't been there in a long time. So the UK sending down the Queen Elizabeth carrier. We've had our French, our German, Canadian. The US is, is there permanently, of course, but there there is a much increased presence within Southeast Asia that we haven't seen in a very long time, which which signals on one hand that that the China problem and the, and how you know the Western traditional Western alliances and partners manage the rise of China isn't just a problem for those of us living in that corner of the world. But the what has really been emphasized is is for NATO, China is a rising problem, but it's not the problem. As was pointed out, you know, China doesn't border any NATO countries. For the residents of, of those countries, such as Oania, how do you bring a population on board to understand the rise of China and, and the issues that they may have for them if, if they can't see it, but they can see the problem right on their corner. You know, their, their border, they literally don't even have to go you know, too far. And I think that's a similar issue for nations such as, as Australia and New Zealand who have been blessed by geography not to have adversaries sitting on our doorstep. How do we bring our populations forward, particularly when China has such strong economic ties and reliance? That's what people are interested in, is their individual security and future moving forward as well. Canada will have an Indo-Pacific strategy someday soon, <laughs> <laughs> we're being told. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I wonder if we went to the West Coast and spoke to academics and, and those living on the West Coast, whether they would have, you know, actually they do have a strategy because when we went to San Francisco and we met with academics and members from the business community, then they were very China-focused because mm-hmm. that's where they're, that's where a large portion of California's income comes from. So it was a, it was a really valuable experience to start in DC but then to uh, transition to San Francisco and, and actually understand that even within you know a large nation nation like the US there's a there's a difference on the east and the west coasts yeah although I would say I'm, I'm an American who's lived in Canada for 20 years and I, I, I think that the Americans have a better awareness of that other side of the country and, and that other ocean and I think Canadians in general have had a harder time really thinking, you know, that the West is really, the West of Canada is really, really far away and it's not really as well connected or as uh, into, into, the, into Ottawa as California is into the DC. Right. So you get a lot of politicians from the West Coast who are in DC. You get a lot of people in the policy world who, who are from the West Coast. And, and I think there's just been a greater visibility of the Pacific. I mean, the amount of effort the Americans have had in the Pacific War versus the amount of effort the Canadians had in the Pacific War, you know, it was not the Canadian effort was not to scale Canada. So it's just something that is not historically resonant. And so it's been a challenge. And now Canada's divided about how to stand against China. That this is a real debate, whereas in the United States you have the two parties competing with each other to be more tough on China. And that's not the debate we have here right now. So I think it's a little different. You've all been through a lot of experience in terms of both uh, in training and instructing. And so do you see that there's a shift in your organizations about how to improve on diversity and equity in your armed forces? Are things changing? And if so, what's how are those changes working out? Yes, in Sweden, we have done much work on this for several, several years. And... I think it must start with the will to change and maybe that is from upside and down but it's also in, in the middle on every level 
and then you have to have a strategy to how do we do it and a vision of, of where we are going so that that is the most important thing to have have the will i think yeah i, I would very much agree with that and we often discuss that sometimes you know the statements on the higher level are not translated into the will and into actions on a lower level so so strongly believe that Basically, it, it is the mid-level which needs to carry on and implement the changes. I fully agree with the, the necessity to have strong will at, at the summit to impose this kind of evolution. And our ministers have been very strong at that. We are now one of the we have one of the highest feminization rates in the, in the in the in the armed forces. We are around something like twenty percent. Mm. However, that doesn't mean that we're good in all domains. There are still plenty of Places where we can make efforts and have better results in terms of, uh, you know, the higher assignment still needs a bunch of uh, mostly all white males, and we need to put some more women into that and gender in more diversity into that. What I think we should do is well, we've already advanced a lot. I mean, we are we have some issues with initial basic training, so we the minister has been very strong into you know, doing more, applying more modern thoughts to the training. But I think it's not only, the, the will has to go all the way down. And I think it's not only a will, it's, we need to take to have examples, strong examples. We are in the military, you know, when you learn to disassemble a rifle, you're not given a book or some amphitheater course, course. what you have is someone in front of you telling you, this is how I do it, and this is how you have to do it. And I think that's precisely what we need to have. We, we don't have people teaching you that gender equality is good and LGBTQ, whatever, is very important. We know that. But what we want to know is someone showing us. And what I think has to be done better is to ensure that in the educational institution, we are able to select people who are strong example of what that means and not just paying lip service because in the book we have to say that you have a class on this on gender and this is it and you forget and we go to something else that's my vision of it and i think that you come into something very important with that and that is the leadership can't do this without a leadership that is strong and also has this will and their environment in in the school and in, in the institution must be in a sense, you have to be curious and you have to trust the one in the room and also the security to say what you think and, and the trust, so respect for each other. So the leadership in doing this is very, very important. So we need uh, teachers at the schools with high competence in what they are supposed to, to learn the students, but we also need them to be a good leader. So. Those persons are wanted everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the big challenges that we have that, uh, that Stephanie has experienced, which is that right now there's not that many women who've ascended, and so they get hit hard with lots of different requests because they need to be represented on this uh, in this endeavor and that endeavor and this committee and that committee. And I guess one of the questions is how do you manage in your own careers and your lives? You know, there's not that many brigadier generals who are women in the French military. There's not that many people of your rank in your respective military. So how do you manage all these competing demands in your time since you have to represent your entire gender constantly on all these different committees? 
I think that's precisely where we need, uh, and that's a discussion we had last week, we need white male supporters, because in the end, in the room, that's what there is. If you wait, if you wait to have enough women in the room to talk about uh, gender, and you will never go further. <laughs> it's, I think it's exactly when we, um, when women get the right to vote, that was given by male, you know, white male voter who decided that women were allowed because there was enough discussion, there were enough exchanges, and mm. minds have had evolved. So that's precisely what I think we should do. It's, it shouldn't be women talking about women. It should be about people talking about what's good for your nation, what's good for your army, what's good for the defense. That's precisely that. It's not about women you know, shouting to get rights. At some point, that has to be in order to get men understand that there's an issue. But in the end, we have to work all together. And we need uh, male supporters. And that's precisely, I think, what we should go and find because you won't have enough women in each and every uh, school to explain to guys that it's good to have women around and that they will have women as a boss. Those are men who have to tell that. And that's my mm -hmm. personal position. <laughs> so I think one of the really important factors is the ability to have a conversation on gender that doesn't put off three quarters of the room. So generally when, when you talk women, peace and security, people fixate on the term women and mm. they never get to the peace and security aspects. So uh, the conversations that we've been having and particularly the framework conversation that we had at the US Institute of Peace around uh, not only including women, peace and security, but positive masculinity and intersecting identities to try and, and bring the whole room in on the journey and, and the importance of doing that through you know, all the other context and, and the meetings that we've had, issues don't just impact one set of the community, they impact across the whole community. So we have to be able to plan uh, and, and operate uh, in a way that lessens that impact as much as possible. Yeah, and I totally agree on that. And as, as a woman then, when I often are the sing single woman in, in the room or is in a uh, leading position, uh, I need those uh, male uh, allies because I can't, can't do this battle on my own. And on the other hand, I am a woman every day. <laughs> so for me, it's uh, very important to be me and be an authentic uh, leader because if I lose that, I don't know where I'm going. I think that we quite often start to deny gender in ourselves. Because we want to be uh, being leaders, we want to be taken as leaders, not as female leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think that quite often we, we deny that in ourselves and basically deny the opportunity of an example to, to some other females who are growing up and looking up to. I, I was thinking, you're right, that's definitely something we're missing, this mentoring. This is a question I wanted to address. We are, we don't, we don't have formal mentoring. We have an association of women in defense in France who takes care, who offers mentoring, but there's no official. And I was surprised when I came to the States and in Canada to see how that was uh, ingrained in the, your way of, of promoting uh, gender. That's, been, that's something I'm going to bring back to France. That's a perfect segue into my next question about what you've learned with your time as fellows together. And if you think about your respective roles in the field of policy, training, and education, have you learned some best practices from your interaction with other fellows, or what has inspired you to find those lessons that you're going to take home, as you just mentioned? 
Well, the one big finding is that it's the same in every country. <laughs> uh, so I'm not alone in what I uh, see and what I meet every day. And I think that is very important with this network that we are building among us. That we have someone to talk uh, with who has uh, the same experiences. I would say I've never seen that many high-ranking female in one room before. And that, that is great experience we are, we are bringing back. It's not the support group would be the bad word, but kind of seeing that females more or less undergo this, the same challenges at this or that, at that point of, of the career, it makes life easier. You know that you're not alone. So, but that is on the gender side. On the policy side, I, I work with the defense policy now, and it was so so great to join the fellowship and to, to hear so many different policy questions being addressed from different angles. I mean, being back at home, you, 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 you just do your work. It's not often that you kind of get to discuss about China versus Russia versus US versus North Korea. And it was really, really re refreshing and eye-opening in, in, in some of the, of the aspects. I will bring back two things, two domains, and I agree with Monica. There's the, the leadership issue in terms of uh, who we're meeting, and I was so surprised of the, how high level we, uh, the authority we, we met with. That was absolutely exceptional. And we had some great experts telling us that that was interesting, but that's my field because in the half of my career I've, I've been advising authorities. So, and I was very impressed by the level we, we had. The other part is once again I will cite Monica. I like your idea of a support group because I can hear for a network, but that won't help because I may have met interesting people in Pentagon. That's not going to be. That's not my field, and I'm never ever have to deal with them again. I'm not in international relations. I'm not in this kind of this field of work. So network is fine, but I'm not sure it will be of much help to me. But what will be of help will be all these women I've met and discovering that yes, we have the same issues, you know, where, whether we are Canadian or New Zealander or because some of those nations are so forth Canada is so I mean we know all about Canada and Northern country about how advanced they are in terms of gender issues, but in the end you discover that men are the same everywhere and <laughs> we still have the same issues everywhere. And that, that, that's a good support because, you know, okay, we, it's hard, but it's hard for everyone, so we'll go forward and if I, if I don't make it, my daughters will do and that's going to be fine. So yes, that's the two things I will bring back home. Uh, the good news is that there's now more space for, for women to, to rise to the top of these hierarchies and uh, to feel more comfortable about being who they are and, 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 and excelling. But it shouldn't have been this hard and it shouldn't have been this long. And I, I remember having lots of debates with my daughter about, you know, we're making progress. And she was always like, it's not fast enough. No, I'm like, no, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. She, she, she never lost those arguments, so I gotta say. That is something that we're discussing very much also. It takes so much time mm -hmm. to change a culture. And the 1325 is uh, 25, 21 years mm -hmm. now. And what have, we, what have we done in those years? Uh, I think one thing that I take with me is uh, it's obvious there is no women issues. And therefore, the, the, every issue has a gender perspective. So you have to turn it around and think the other way. It was just a way of doing things which we've considered 
the way to do things for, mm -hmm. for, for centuries mm -hmm. is changing and it's fine. I mean, and when you see how, how minds are changing in terms of climate change, I mean, gender could be the, the next, I mean, may follow the same path. So it's not about fighting against men or whatever. It's just, you know, being all in a room and being, a, being able to bring our own brain to the table. Mm -hmm. And this is what's been so frustrating all these years. It's about being considered a brain, not just a woman in the room, like mm. put fleur, because we need a, some woman on the picture. Just get everyone around. Brain, helping my country get better, helping the world get better. Of course, but it also is a fact that if women take more space, someone has to leave that space for the woman mm -hmm. and for that brain. I think that's a good expression. So for some men, it could be hard, I think. And they realize that women take more place means something for someone else. Well, and the reality that we're facing in Canada is that we're going through a lot of a crisis, and there will be resistance from the folks who benefited from the old order of things. Mm -hmm. And that's just the. I mean, I, I always go back to a quote, quote that Machiavelli had about how the, the the defenders of the old order have more power, and so reform is always going to be more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so there will be people who who will try to hold on to what they've got. And it's clear to me that, that the, the future requires us to, to do better on these things, both because it's the right thing to do and it's the effective thing to do. But it's not, it's going to take more, more time than it should. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a former student of mine who used to refer to this as sort of the, the gender tax of how, and, and also a race tax of having more, more of your time spent on these issues than they should. And so you have to do more and spend more time on that, which is the time that you'd rather spend on either Putting putting your professional life further ahead, or spending on your home life and, and and enjoying that, but instead you're wasting your time having to deal with this friction, which isn't going away easily. I am very tempted to ask a question to our Swedish Colonel about mm -hmm. the feminist foreign policy, uh, because Canada has gone that way as well, and I was just wondering what impact that has had on the armed forces when the country says we have a feminist foreign policy, how does that then trickle down within the armed forces? And I think that France too, uh, looking at our French general around the table, has included some of this language in its foreign policy statement. And so I'm wondering how that shift in tone and narrative and emphasis ultimately impacts the military. For Sweden, I think it's through our Supreme Commander, General Mikhail Bidian. He is very has a very strong opinion of, of how we should do it in the armed forces and he is such a good leader in this and what we are talking about is the uh, operational effect uh, that in the armed forces we need the best and then we don't we, we can't choose just from the men we have to choose from men and women to get the best so if it's the foreign policy that made him uh, make it so clear, I don't know, but it, it, within the armed forces, our Supreme Commander is very clear about it. In France, I, I'm not sure we, were, we are led by um, a feminist agenda in uh, international relations. What I know, it's, it covers all part of the government that was a very strong will of uh, President Macron to apply this, uh, this gender issue and how it was, it was translated in the French defense by having a, a female minister, Florence Parry, which is very has strong will in terms of, of uh, gender issue and 
how that has trickled down. That has trickled down by the fact that we are having uh, more uh, women in position of authorities. We're going to have, we have in every year more three female generals. So we, we, her goal is a 10% uh, uh, rate for the female generals. She has put uh, gender reference in, uh, in each and every part of the defense. So this is a question we had earlier. This is, there's a will and now there's the result. But I think most of our leaders are, I think, concerned about we, with this issue and will ensure that it's strongly applied. But it takes time and um, I have no issues, and uh, they, they, they are going to jump at me, but I have no issue if it takes time. The one thing I want to see is that it's not question again. The trouble is when you're going very strong in one direction, direction there's a strong reaction, and that's what you see with the, 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 the position of the, some males who consider them being aggressed, and they are. I mean, they've been born and raised in a, in a world that's changing, and we have to make the adjustment progressive. I don't want to change everything today. If that means that two months from now, we're going to go in the other side because we have gone too far, too fast, too strong. It's about discussing. You never get, it's about negotiation. You, you need to, everyone needs to find something in, in, the, in the change. If people feel they've been threatened or ill-treated or they have lost things, they will never ever accept the, the result. So, Let's take time and negotiate and bring things in order to be something stable. I don't want a quick win that I will lose two years from now. Um, from our perspective, I would say that basically we are in that take time period so far, but we have seen the roots growing. Basically, if you would look how many females are joining the military academy, so the number is really growing with, with every year, so 20, 25%. And, and when they have the first, the initial training, it's the males who actually drop out first because the females have stronger motivation and they stay and they stay. So basically that trend is growing and, and we'll see the results. Let's end on a lighter note. Yes. <laughs> Some people that might be listening in on this interview are fellows that might be chasing for next year. And so now that you are in the middle of it or maybe on the tail end of it, do you have any advice for the future cohort of fellows? Well, I think for me, uh, I before I even left home, I was letting all of those eligible to to come in future to future fellowships to put their hand up and to ask for it because still not well um, known, and I will be much more active in in telling people that they need to need to be putting their hand up as to what to say when when the next person is selected just embrace every opportunity and and be prepared for an experience unlike any i've had in the past 21 years so i would give some advice not just for future fellows but for women in rising positions of leadership is to trust your credentials to make sure that uh, you let your voice be heard because even today as, as we met with the Minister of Defense and the Prime Minister, who was very much bragging on her credentials. She was a bit embarrassed, and she's an amazingly accomplished woman who's going to do wonderful things for Canada in her role as the Minister of Defense. You know, it, it was really enlightening to me to see that even when we get women in 
decision-making roles like that, the tendency is to, to kind of shrink back and not participate as fully as, as you can. And what I've learned from this group of women who are also amazingly accomplished, not just in their professional lives, but in their personal lives and the number of languages they speak and the interests that they hold, we've really found a, a group of friends for life. But to remember that, that we have something important to say and that the combined 330 years of military experience <laughs> that we have is something that's going to lead our nations into hopefully some lasting peace. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed these conversations. Uh, we learn a lot from them, and they also give us a lot of hope that our military and the militaries around the world are being led by really strong people who have really great experiences and great perspectives on things. So thank you again for your time, and good luck with the rest of your tour of North America. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sure we all watched a lot of stuff over the break. We watched a variety of things. Uh, uh, so I'm going to talk about something dark, something light, and then some history. The dark is Yellow Jackets. It's, it's caught the zeitgeist. It is a terrific TV show of nine episodes about a girls soccer team that on their way to the national championship crashes somewhere, I guess in the Canadian Northwest. Not exactly sure where they crash. But then... You know, they're, they're left to their own devices for something like 19 months and bad things ensue. And this TV show is about both the things that happened in the wilderness 25 years ago and what's happening in the present day New Jersey situation. And it's just fascinating. It's funny. It's moving. It's just gripping as, as all get out. And the, the, the last episode was Sunday night. And so you can stream it. And it, it's super addictive. And there's a whole lot of theorizing to be had about what's really going on, what's driving things. And it's just a fun show to get uh, enraptured in. It's a fun show to watch. So that's my first recommendation. My second is Alex Ryder. It's a second effort to take the Alex Ryder books and make it into a, a, a something. There was a movie, this is now a TV show. I, I, we watched the second season where Alex Ryder is caught up in the shenanigans that involve a, a tech company and the video game they're launching. And so he's a, a teenager who's been involved with British intelligence, and he's got a whole set of skills that Liam Neeson might envy. And he's got a lot of guts. And so it's about him and his friends trying to figure out what this game company is doing and how it involves the president of the United States and all kinds of other stuff. And so it's a pretty quick watch, and it's a nice diversion. The third item for this week is Conquering Tide. I've already mentioned Ian Toll's first book about the Pacific War, that is uh, in World War II of the the war between mostly the Americans and mostly the Japanese. This second book covers the period from the summer of 1942 to the summer of 1944. And it's really where, well, we go from the Japanese extending their control to instead the Americans pushing back. And I had some idea, I've had some knowledge about the Pacific War, but this book really gives a lot of dynamics and a lot of events and processes and alliance politics and civil mill relations that I... I didn't know, and I'm now into the third book of the, of the trilogy, so I'll recommend that in a future episode. But I found this to be really readable history, really, really engaging history, 
really interesting dynamics about the people involved with that war. And he gets some good perspectives on the Japanese side as, as well as the American side. And it's a really fascinating read. It's a thick book, but it's a pretty fast read. So those are my three suggestions in between bouts of digging out from the snow or whatever else you're doing this time of year. Be well and, and keep dodging COVID as best you can. Take care. 